brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jeff Leo, and I'm the college pastor here at Lake Avenue Church. And to the college students I met this morning, I promise, I really am a college pastor despite the way that I look. Uh, I only do this every, every now and then. Uh, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles. And if there's a pew Bible in front of you, you're going to need it this morning. And you can open up to page 409 in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. Because this morning, this text has some literary features, so you're going to need to keep your finger on the text. And I want to be your tour guide this morning. But just to make a disclaimer, uh, a friend of mine gave me a wise piece of advice one time. You see, my wife and I uh, became homeowners a few years ago, thanks to uh, my parents and to my wife's uh, incredible saving skills. Not mine. And my friend's advice to me was, you know, since we have extra rooms, we've taken folks to live with us, which has been a real blessing, uh, both to us and I hope to them. But he said, when you take someone into your home, you ought to make the appropriate disclaimers. And the one that he makes when he brings people into his home, it's very simple, but it's very surprising. He says to people, I want to tell you now that you may see things in our home that you do not like. And so, you know, when we took someone into our home this summer, I said those words. I said, you may see things. I left off the part that, you know, you may not like. But I told them, when you get to know somebody a little bit better, you might be surprised by what you experience. So that best friends, when they're graduating from high school, with stars in their eyes, hoping to room together as roommates in college, all of a sudden they realize, well, one of us is very messy, and one of us is very neat. And all of a sudden, friendship is under stress. In this passage this morning, we deal with someone we know well, Elijah. And if you've grown up in the church, you've heard countless times the story of his miraculous victory over the prophets of Baal. But as we read this passage this morning, I believe that we will see something that I think some of us ought not to like and to others of us, will provide great comfort. It will afflict those of us who are comfortable. But my prayer is that it will comfort those of us who are afflicted. And as we read in the text this morning, I think Elijah's life, if we're familiar with his heroics, we will become acquainted with his great depression. And in the midst and in between those two poles of his life, we learn one very important thing. That no matter his circumstances and no matter ours, God is always at work to accomplish his purposes. He is always at work to accomplish those things which he would see done. This text is arranged in a very special way. And that's why you'll need your Bibles open. It's kind of like a set of concentric circles with a middle ring, an inner ring, and an outer ring. Three rings which we'll cover today. And let's start with the middle ring. 
This ring is found in verses 9 and 10, but also verses 13 and 14. This is where God confronts Elijah, and he asks him a very important question. What are you doing here, Elijah? You see, what had happened was, Elijah had just had his incredible victory over the prophets of Baal. You know the story. It's where Elijah decides to have a little competition, a friendly competition between your God and my God, your prophets, all, many of you, and little old me, Elijah. We really get to know Elijah a little bit in the way that he's very assured of himself, but especially assured of his God. So much so that the instructions were, you take an altar, you pile some stuff on it, and you call upon your God to set it ablaze. And I'll do something a little bit different. What I'll do is I'll take an altar, but I will douse it with water, and then I'll pray to the Lord God. And we'll see which one of us has a God that answers prayer. Elijah was very sure of himself. So much so, he began to taunt the other team. He said to them, where's your God? As they prayed and they danced and they chanted and they cut themselves, expecting God to do some, their God to do something. Is he missing? Is he asleep? Where has he gone? And then Elijah took his turn. He prayed to his God and fire came down and consumed everything there. And the people acknowledged him, saying, this is God. This is his grand victory. But because of his victory, Queen Jezebel sent him a letter. Said to him, I know what you've done and I'm going to get you for it. You see, Elijah thought to himself, wait a minute, I just won. How could this be? This was supposed to show all of Israel, in fact, all of the world, that God is God. And I get a death threat? And so what happens is, he runs. Formerly very confident, formerly very assured of himself and zealous for the Lord, as he says twice here in the middle ring. Now, where is he? Well, he's hiding in a cave. But not just that. <coughs> Excuse me. On, the, on his way to the cave, he went all the way south to Beersheba. But not just Beersheba. He didn't just stop there. The text says, earlier in chapter 19, that he went another day's journey into the desert. One of the things that we know about the desert south of Beersheba is no one can survive there without proper provisions. And he took nothing with him. We call this a suicide attempt. We know what this is. In despair, receiving a death threat from Jezebel, not seeing the people of Israel turn to their God, knowing that prophets had been put to the sword, he falls into deep depression. And this is where God comes to him and says, what are you doing here? From the desert, God gives him food 
for a journey up to Mount Horeb. And at Mount Horeb, he enters into a cave, and God says to him, what are you doing here? And he says the exact same thing twice, right? You see it in, the, in verse 10 and also in verse 14. It's exactly the same. When the author of the book of Kings chose to use precisely the same words, he was sending you and I a message about Elijah. Now, I want you to think about this just for a minute. If God asked you the same question twice, I think it's because he wants to hear something a little different the second time around. Right? Um, Sorry, Elijah, you got that wrong. Why don't you try again? What are you doing here? But in his great distress, he could only say the same thing. Look at what he says. I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me too. This is it. This is the end. In fact, in the desert south of Beersheba, he said, I'm no better than my fathers. Take me now. I'm done. Elijah was at his absolute weakest. And if it's true that God accomplishes his purpose, no matter what, the first thing that we learn in this middle ring is that even when you are at your weakest point, God still is at work. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there. You're at your weakest point. And some of you have seen the mighty hand of God to deliver. But what does he deliver us to? Sometimes he delivers us into a position of strength, of wealth, of status, of capability. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that there, in that space, is great danger. There is great danger of forgetting that God works even at our weak points. You see, uh, before I was a pastor, I was a missionary to the college campus. And part of being a missionary to the college campus meant that we raised our funds. We raised our salary, we raised our benefits, and we raised our uh, ministry expenses. This was challenging for us, but somehow the Lord always provided for us. We were always in a position of need, greatly indebted to those who prayed and supported us. And for that, we are very grateful. Once, I was on that side of the pulpit. But now, I'm on this side of church ministry, and I no longer have to raise funds. And can I tell you what I miss most? about no longer being a missionary to the campus in the same way that I was then. I miss folks telling me, I've been praying for you. I miss folks telling me, God has given us this surplus and we believe in what you're doing so that would you please take it and put it to use. I miss being in that position of need so that my brothers and sisters could always surprise me when I'm at my weakest. I recall one day My car broke down. My car that had been donated to me for one dollar. It broke down, which was no surprise. You get what you pay for. 
And I came in to a room where I was training some new staff and volunteers for campus ministry. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm late. My car just broke down. It's going to cost me six or seven hundred dollars. I'm not sure. And at that time, that kind of repair was a great burden to us. A few minutes later, as I was making a phone call uh, to the mechanic, a young man walked in, tears in his eyes, and he said to me, the Lord has just told me I need to give you six or seven hundred dollars. I, I, I do miss the kind of support from the people of God that I used to know in that way. But when we arrive in a position of strength and in an ability, I think we learn a dangerous lesson, which is that we should actually avoid ever being in a position of need to anyone. the most dangerous thing of all is that there, in learning that lesson that we should avoid being in need, at our worst, we begin to despise those in need. But God is gentle. And Jesus came for the weak. And as a matter of fact, brothers and sisters, we need each other. If we have forgotten that we are in this perpetual position of need, then this is a lesson that we must learn. God is at work when we are at our weakest. Never forget. This past week was finals week for me. And on Friday at 8 o'clock, I handed in my term paper. Praise be to God. (laughs) And there are folks in this room this morning who told me that they were praying for me. And I can't tell you how much that's meant to me. In fact, on Tuesday of last week, a bolt of lightning seemed to have struck my brain, and all of a sudden I was able to get all the words out on the page over time. And I really think that everyone in here should know that there is someone praying for them. Everyone should have that privilege of knowing their position of dependence upon the body of Christ. One of the things that we do every Sunday morning is to have pastors and prayer counselors up here in the front. And I have to, I have to confess to you, sometimes when I'm up there, I'm just, I feel like I'm standing at the side of the gym waiting for somebody to ask me to dance. I would love for the culture of this congregation to change in such a way that when we invite people to come make their requests known to God, that there would be a flood of people and that we need more pastors and prayer counselors to do the kind of ministry that says this people knows they are dependent upon a holy God. I'd love for that to be us. And prepare yourselves, people. Okay? Elijah should have learned that God would be at work even in his weakness. How did he get to this place where he couldn't recognize that God would have done something This was a prophet of God, a professional as it were. You see, Elijah knew who God was. The text tells us that he knows who God was. In the middle ring, we have a power encounter with the Lord. There is wind that blows apart the mountains. There is an earthquake and there is fire. The beginning of that section in verse 11a, God says, He gives him an instruction. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. 
for the Lord is getting ready to pass by. Do you notice he doesn't obey? He waits for the wind to blow by, for the earthquake to shake, and for the fire to rage. He waits because he knows God. He knows how to experience God. And so when finally the soft, low whisper comes, only then does Elijah venture out to the mouth of the cave where he hears a voice. And it's God calling again, saying, what are you doing here? Elijah had come to expect God to work in a certain way. He expected God to send down fire. In fact, fire, wind, and earthquake, these were the classic signs that a conquering God was coming to make things right. But Elijah knew that God wasn't in those things, that he was in the voice. Elijah had come to expect things a certain way for victory to come. And so when he gives his second answer, because there is no victory in the earthquake, in the wind, in the fire, he still remains depressed. Where is victory, he says. Israel is putting prophets to the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they want to kill me too. I believe that sometimes we begin to expect God a certain way. Expect Him to do things the way that we think He ought to do them. And so the lesson for us here in the middle ring is that He works in ways that we would never expect. I'm wary of folks who always seem to know exactly what God is going to do in my life. In fact, I had a student once. We'll call him Jerry, though his name is not Jerry. He was a new convert his freshman year. He heard the gospel. He responded to the gospel. He became a Christian, and he started following. And early on, only a few months into his life with Christ, He was seeking what so many of us seek, to know the ways of God and how he would act in his life. And a few months in, he came to this conclusion. He said, Jeff, I think I figured it out. When I want to know what God is going to do in my life, I'll pull out a coin and I'll flip it. Now, no offense to those of you who do this, you know, if you do this here. But what he soon learned was that that just is not the way that things work. When you and I begin to write rules for the ways in which we believe God works, He will always surprise us so that I believe we will never be prepared for the shock of either the miraculous deliverance of God or the crippling disappointment that we experience in God. Neither. We will never be prepared for the shock of His miraculous deliverance nor a grave disappointment. Because God does what he seeks to do for himself. In fact, the folks that I am most comforted by, I was talking with a, comfor- uh, with a co-worker here at Lake Avenue Church, and he said something that I, I think was profoundly wise. He said to me, I know one or two things for sure, but the rest I have no idea. I think that's good advice, especially for young people like myself, because here I stand before you proclaiming the Word of God, pretending to know what I'm talking about, 
But what I really want deep in my heart is to be that kind of person that says one or two things I know for sure, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, maybe another thing, I love my wife and my kids, or something like that. But the rest, it's all of God's mysterious grace. Thanks be to God. This is a lesson that Elijah should have learned, but I think that he failed to. But then there's one more thing, and it's found in the outer ring of this text, which is the first part of verse 9 and verses 15 to 18. You see, over and over, Elijah thought himself to be the only one left. In fact, earlier on in chapter 18, he had an encounter with Obadiah. Now, Obadiah was not the kind of self-assured, confident person that Elijah had portrayed himself to be. Obadiah, in fact, when he saw Elijah coming a ways off, he bowed down and said, oh my gosh, it's you. He was a little bit starstruck, you see. But I think he was also a little bit embarrassed for what he had done. You see, Obadiah had done something he thought was the right decision. He knew that times were getting hard for people who were faithful to God in Israel. So what he had done was taken the prophets, those whose job it was to declare God's word, and really of disapproval, to the people of Israel, and he had hid them in a cave. You hear that? He hid them in a cave. Where do we find Elijah? At the beginning of the text, he was in a cave. Now, we've got to put two and two together here. Elijah thought he was the only one left, in part because he was the only one out there doing things great for the Lord, but he had forgotten that there were hundreds of prophets hiding away in a cave. Thinking himself to be the only one, he must have discounted them. But where is he now? Well, he's in a cave too. Depressed and hiding from Jezebel. What is it that happens when we believe we know the ways of God? I believe it begins to divide us from the people in whom God is actually at work. That was the hardest thing that I had to say to you this morning. That when we come to think we know the ways of God and that he's going this way, sometimes we can forget that he has gone that way and is at work in those people and we fail to follow him there. The hardest word for Elijah to hear, I think, comes in the bottom portion of the third ring in verses 15 to 18. You see in verse 15 he says, Go back the way you came. Elijah was all the way down in the desert of Beersheba, and he's being told to go all the way back up to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Who is this Hazael? He doesn't get many mentions in the Bible. He's not someone that I knew previously. He's not a major figure. As a matter of fact, he is a major villain. In 1993, a monument was found in the desert in Israel. And on it was an inscription in Aramaic. It was a monument to a military victory. The sons of Hazael wrote something that said, this is to commemorate the battle in which the house of David, in which Israel was defeated. And the Bible tells us that Hazael defeated the kings of both Israel and Judah. 
the north and the south, a total victory over the people of God. And it was Elijah who anointed this Hazael. You see, Elijah discounted the prophets, thought that he was the only one left, and God taught him a lesson. I use people you would never expect. You would never expect Hazael. You would never expect those cowards in the cave. But look at where you are. And Jesus warns us gravely that we are not to judge, lest by transgressing that standard of judgment that we use, we become guilty in the same way. When we think we know that God is over there, but he's actually over there. Brothers and sisters, we are in grave danger. I have been likewise surprised and convicted by these kinds of events. In fact, just last week, here in the 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock services, I was floored by the response to our Urbana recruitment efforts and to the Urbana worship team that was here. I was deeply humbled. I was, first of all, surprised by the number of you that have actually been to Urbana, and that was an encouragement to my heart. I thought I was the only one who cared about God's global mission. That's a little bit of an overstatement. But secondly, I was humbled by the response of so many of you who said, I want to give. I want to send a student. I was deeply humbled. God is doing something here to send our young people to Urbana to inquire of the Lord what he would have them to do. And the invitation is to join him. Join him. But the second story that I have for you is is this. Um, And I have to kind of uh, muffle the details a little bit. But there's something that I didn't tell the interviewing committee as I was interviewing here at Lake Avenue Church. And maybe, I, I, I can't remember if I told them or not, but the long and short of it is, I've been fired before. I lost my job one time uh, for doing something that I thought was right. I uh, was told that in this job we were going for a training weekend in which we would go to a site And we were not allowed to leave that site in order for us to receive this training. Now, this training spanned a weekend. And I thought to myself, well, this is problematic. I I am accustomed to going and worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day. And so I strode up to the supervisor and I told him, this is going to be a problem. I'm going to church on Sunday. And he told me that if you do so, there will be consequences. And I said, to heck with the consequences. I have to do what's right. And so that Sunday, I went and I worshipped the Lord only to return and to receive an envelope containing the terms of my dismissal from employment. I was deeply distraught. Later, I got my job back. You see, the details of that is not so important. But what I thought was going on was that I was doing the right thing. I was standing up for God. I was doing something that no one else was doing. In fact, I was the only one who raised an objection that something is wrong about this. And because I thought I knew the right thing to do, all the other brothers and sisters in Christ who didn't follow my lead they might as well have been hiding in a cave. And it divided me from people that I cared deeply about. I might have in the end done the right thing, but in the wrong way. 
forgetting that God works through people we would never expect and not just through little old me. So there are three things, three aspects of the way in, God is, in which God is always at work. The first is that God is always at work when we're at our weakest, and we dare not despise weakness. We dare not. The second is that he does things in ways that we would never expect, and if we believe we've gotten it down, God will show us either to our miraculous delight or to our deep disappointment. And the third, that he uses whomever he pleases so that there are really only a few responses for us this morning that I would call us to. Number one, this morning, brothers and sisters, put yourself in a position of need. Just think about it. If you haven't heard the words, I'm praying for you, and know that that's true, I want you to know that someone ought to. In fact, that they should be here to my left and your right this morning. The first thing that you can do is to acknowledge your need before God. But the second thing, the reason why we're here every Sunday morning is to learn our need for others. The second application. I don't think that we should try to insulate ourselves from the kind of shock that God desires to give us. Some of us do exactly that. We insulate ourselves by either numbing ourselves to what God can do and we go through life not thinking, wow, anything is consequential. Or others of us do the exact opposite, looking for the miraculous around every corner. Instead, we must listen carefully to the soft, low whisper of God. You see, it's not always about the spectacular things He does. Nor is it about the spectacular things that we do. It is about the lordship and guidance of God in whatever way he sees fit. His son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, said these words. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And may that be our food too. Let's pray.